I'm Dr. Fiona Lovely, and this is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. I'm taking the taboos of menopause and perimenopause and bringing light to the dark. No bullshit, no shame. It's time for us to gain a new paradigm in female health, out with the old and in with the new, and I'm bringing fresh perspectives from someone in the arena. I've been practicing women's health for nearly 20 years, and I'm spilling the tea on what it means to live at midlife, knowing that the best is yet to come. I'm sharing my Gen X approach to living through this transition, sassy, a bit sweary, and always honest. Tactical tips and instantly usable information is my aim. I hope to make you laugh and that you learn something new that helps you embrace the change. Together, we bring power to the Perry. Onward to the podcast. Hey, hey, Dr. Fiona Lovely here. This is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. And I'm thrilled today to bring you an interview I recently did with Dr. Jennifer Simmons, breast surgeon, functional medicine physician, and integrative oncologist. And this conversation went way beyond what I thought it was going to be like. And I'm just, I couldn't be more excited to deliver this information to you straight from someone who has worked in the industry for a great many years. So let me introduce Dr. Jen Simmons appropriately, properly, if you will. Dr. Jen Simmons started her professional career as Philadelphia's first fellowship-trained breast surgeon. After spending 17 years as Philadelphia's top breast surgeon, her own illness led her to discover functional medicine. So enamored with the concept of creating health rather than killing disease... She left traditional medicine and her esteemed surgical position in 2019 and founded Real Health MD with the mission to help women anywhere along the breast cancer journey to truly heal. Dr. Jen believes that health is much more than the absence of disease. Health is optimal function. In order to function optimally, we must nourish ourselves in a way that is meaningful and avoid things that interfere with health. Each of us is unique. We all have our own bio-individuality. Each of us is different in how we process our food, what nourishes us, how we detoxify our bodies, and how our environment affects us. Most importantly, however, Dr. Jen knows that health happens at home, not in a doctor's office, not in a hospital health. In a hospital, health happens at home. Dr. Jen is on a mission to change the impact of breast cancer by empowering millions of women to take control of their health and create the life that they want. She crafted her signature course, My Answer to Breast Cancer, to give women the tools to ditch their diagnosis and design their destiny. Dr. Jen is a motivational speaker, maintains her private practice, runs group programs, is a frequent podcast guest, a summit host, an author, has an extensive TV and live speaking experience, is a wife, mother, grandmother, dog lover, athlete, and friend. And man, the information she delivered in our interview is just set to blow the lid off. Breast cancer diagnosis, detection, prevention, and the industry involved. 
Please find out more about Dr. Jen Simmons and her practice at realhealthmd.com. She has a podcast called Keeping Abreast Podcast, and she is set to release her first book called The Smart Person's Guide to Breast Cancer. And I don't know about you, but I am getting my hands on that and reading it ASAP. Now, we had a wonderful conversation that went on uh, much longer than uh, we thought it was going to, but we had, there was so much to talk about. I think you'll find that you agree when you listen to this episode. So would you, if you wish to see the actual full video episode that I did, uh, recording an interview that I did with Dr. Simmons, you can subscribe at my Patreon page where all the video episodes are released. Patreon.com slash Dr. Fiona Lovely. And I think that's it. I don't want to keep you waiting even a second longer because this is such a juicy interview. I just loved it. And just so you know, I asked Dr. Jen if she would come back and speak to us about some other things related to breast cancer that we didn't have the time to cover today. So as always, thank you for being here. I'm so grateful to have your, to bend your ear for a little bit of time and uh, let me know what you think about the episode. Without further ado, here's a word from our sponsor. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it every day in the morning to break my fast. It makes me feel like I'm doing something good for my body, that I'm covering my nutritional bases. This simple daily habit allows me to cover those nutritional bases no matter what the day brings. Oh my gosh, because we never know what the day is going to bring. AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health, replacing your multivitamin, probiotic, and more in one simple drinkable habit. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Fiona Lovely. That's drinkag1.com slash Fiona Lovely. You can find the link in the show notes. Check it out. Welcome to the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast, Dr. Jen Simmons. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a little jealous of your lipstick. I, that wasn't in my plan this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I actually remembered to do it before I hit record. So thank you for noticing that made it all worth it. <laughs> I have actually noticed as I've moved through in further into my perimenopause, my lips have paled and I have to wear a color. Otherwise I just look plain washed out. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that sucks as you go through <laughs> menopause. On yeah. the other hand, Welcome. so fun to catch up on all the lipsticks I didn't get to wear when I was masking every day, all day. There you go. Silver lining. <laughs> Silver lining for sure. Silver lining. So welcome, as I said, to the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. You are a functional medicine physician and mm -hmm. integrative oncologist. Mm -hmm. Tell me, yep. how did you, how did you get here? Well, I didn't start there. I for sure didn't start there. So, um, my specialty, my, my wheelhouse, you know, the, the thing that brings me true joy is to help women along their breast cancer journey to reclaim their health and actually have the health after their diagnosis that they've never had in their whole life. So really capture, um, ideal health. 
But the breast cancer part comes really organically to me because there was really never a time in my life where I didn't know about breast cancer. And as a child, I had a first cousin. Her name was Linda Creed. Linda was a singer songwriter in the 1970s and 1980s. She wrote all the music for the spinners and the stylistics. She wrote 54 hits in all. And her most famous song was the greatest love of all. So Linda wrote that song in 1977 as the title track to the movie, The Greatest, starring Muhammad Ali. But it really received its acclaim in March of 1986 when Whitney Houston released that song to the world. And at that time, it would spend 14 weeks at the top of the charts. Only Linda would never know. Because Linda died of metastatic breast cancer just one month after Whitney released that song. I was 16 years old and my hero died. Her life and ultimately her death gave birth to my life's purpose. And I did the only thing I knew how to do. I became a doctor. I became a surgeon. I became the first fellowship trained breast surgeon in Philadelphia. I did that for a really long time. I did it really well. I did innovative things that no one else was doing. And I did that while running the cancer program for my hospital and being a wife and a mother and an athlete and a philanthropist. And I have all these balls in the air and I think I can do it all until I can't. And I go from probably being one of the most high functioning, high performing people you will ever know to, I can't walk across the room. I don't have the breath in my body to walk across the room. And I spend three days in an exhaustive workup. And at the end of that three days, I'm sitting in the office of my friend and colleague and physician. And he tells me that I need surgery and chemo radiation, and I'm going to be on lifelong medication. And despite the fact that these are things that I say all day, every day, without hesitation or reservation, when the words are coming at me, I'm in Charlie Brown's classroom. I mean, all I hear is wah, 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 like I am having an out-of-body experience. I knew that what he was telling me was true. I knew that what he was offering me was the standard of care. And despite the fact that he told me that if I didn't do these treatments, I would die. And these are words that I had said to thousands of women before. Thousands of women who asked me what will happen to me if I don't treat my breast cancer and I assured them that they would die. These same words coming at me and I said, no, thank you. I still to this day don't know, was it God? Was it universe? I don't know, but something called me away from there and something innately told me that there was more, that there was something more. And I went on a quest to find it, a selfish quest. This was not about anything but healing me. And I, as a traditionally trained physician, or let's say conventionally trained physician, I didn't know much about nutrition or nourishment. And so I thought that I would start there. And so I enrolled in the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, IIN. It's like a certificate program for health coaching. 
I called them no less than 20 times first to be assured that, you know, I'm a physician. Are you sure I'm going to learn something? Are you sure it's going to be a worthwhile endeavor for me? Yes, 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 yes. So I'm sitting in one of the very first lectures and a man named Mark Hyman walks on the stage and introduces himself as a functional medicine physician. Now, at this point, I'm still cynical. I'm still my snooty booty self. And I say, like, I'm a doctor for 20 years. There's no such thing as a functional medicine physician. What is this quack talking about? Right. And the same thing that people say about me today. And then I remember that I was sick and I was there for a reason and checked my ego at the door, tuned in and thank God I did because what he had to say was a turning point for me. And within five minutes of him speaking, I knew exactly why I got sick. I got sick so that I could be in that room on that day, listening to him speak because that was the message that I needed to hear. And the only thing that was gonna get me ready to hear it was a life-threatening diagnosis. And so on that day, because I'm an early adopter and because I, I somehow so strongly heard that calling, I enrolled in the Institute for Functional Medicine, so IFM, and I spent the next three years immersed in the study of functional medicine. And at the end of the, those three years, once I healed myself, it was a bell that I couldn't unring in that I couldn't go back to being a breast surgeon. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't participate in a system that I now knew was so broken because in our conventional medical model, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about breast cancer, or we're talking about diabetes, or we're talking about PCOS or infertility or heart disease. It doesn't matter in the conventional medical system. All the focus is on the symptom and it's all on symptom management get a constellation of symptoms, give it a name, give it a diagnosis, and then prescribe something for it, a pill, a procedure, prescribe a something. And never at any point along the way are we asking the question, why? Why is this happening? What is driving the cancer? What is causing infertility? What is causing PCOS? What is causing the dysfunction? Because unless you deal with the why, Unless you identify the dysfunction, it's only going to repeat itself. You can cut out all the cancers you want. If you don't determine why they're there in the first place, you're just going to get another one, or you're going to manifest another disease. For instance, most women who get a breast cancer diagnosis don't die of breast cancer because they have enough of a delay in recurrence from surgery and from the various treatments that they offer. Most women who get a diagnosis of breast cancer die of heart disease because the inflammation that led to the breast cancer was never identified, was never dealt with. And so it just manifests as heart disease. And so we need to entirely change our approach to healing, 
we need to actually become healers to make an impact. And that is what I want to do. I want to leave this world a far better place than when I, how I found it. And functional medicine was my path to doing that. Amen. Wow. You have said a lot there. <laughs> First of all, I'm I can so, be verbose. Oh, I, but I love it. <laughs> I'm so glad you're still here with us. I'm so glad you found your way because we need your voice. Thank you. You Thank bet. You. So functional medicine is root cause medicine. Yes. And that's a piece that gets missed very much from conventional medicine. Yes. Well, you know, they're totally uncomfortable with it because we think of doctors as critical thinkers, but the truth is that might have been true at one time, but once you get into the system, once you become a physician, once you go to medical school, critical thought is no longer rewarded. Yeah. Repetition is mm -hmm. rewarded right? Stay coloring within the lines is rewarded. But most people think about like even geniuses that discover things, they are at first considered quacks until generations later, when we realize that, oh yeah, that was true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, and so as, as a conventional doctor, like you're not asking questions because you're, you're told this is how it is. And we've seen this demonstrated time and time and time again in history. When you're told things enough times, it ends up being true to you. That's mm -hmm. your truth, mm -hmm. right? And so if you come up through medical school and you're told that to be a good doctor you're a good diagnostician in that you can take a constellation of symptoms and give it the proper name and then prescribe what has been predetermined and preordained as the thing to do. That's what a good doctor is. And so everyone wants to be a good doctor. So if you come to your doctor, your good doctor, and you say, but I want to know why your doctor is told from the beginning that the why is not important. Mm -hmm. So now you're a difficult patient, mm -hmm. right? You're driving them crazy. You're a thorn in their side because you're asking them to step out of a box where they have so comfortably lived for a long time. And, you know, again, it took me a life-threatening diagnosis to take my blinders off. And yeah. otherwise I would, I, I would be a surgeon today. I would have never left. I was mm -hmm. at the very top of my game. I would have never left. I would have been like all the other surgeons that I knew before me and like basically forced to retire. Wow. There's so many questions I have for you, but they're really the one that's at the top of my mind is how do we change the system? It's really hard because we're competing with entities that are big and strong and well-established. So for instance, like the pharmaceutical industry does not want people to wake up because their entire platform is based on 
giving you a drug that then will eventually require another drug, which will require another drug, which of which symptoms will require another drug, right? They want you on their conveyor belt. They don't want you off. They don't want you well, and they don't want you dead. They just want you on the conveyor belt. So, and pharmaceutical industries have a lot to do with medical education. So it's nearly impossible to separate it. The other problem with our medical system is that currently doctors are only rewarded for sickness. They're not rewarded for health. So if they talk to you for an hour about how to eat and how to move and how to think, and if they talk to you for an hour about that, they can't be compensated. There's no code for that, right? And so if they can't make money off of it, it's not, it's not a benefit to them. So we really need to revamp the system. We need to reward health as much as anything else. And, you know, the insurers are a little to blame too, because um, the way that, that doctors and hospitals are reimbursed is also through these things. So like doctors want to do more, doctors want to charge more so that they can earn a living. And um, insurance became what everyone thought like your medical plan was, right? And so mm -hmm. instead of insurance being for catastrophic things, it became for everything. So mm -hmm. now where are people's incentives to be healthy? They don't exist, right? Because if, if being healthy was a covered service or seeing people like me was a covered service, it would be a different story, but they can get sick and have their, their care for what they perceive to be free, although it's very expensive, but for what they perceive to be free, but yet being healthy, eating healthy food, having a healthy lifestyle, they see as costly. So it's, it's centered around what we value in our society. And our values are so off, so off. Wow. So I, I do think it's going to come from the people. I think it has that to. The, the next generation, they're smart. Mm -hmm. They're smart. And um, they're not buying the, oh, get sick and just take a pill. Mm -hmm. Like, they, they get it. Mm -hmm. They get it that that's not a solution. And, you know, unfortunately, it's going to take some time because that, ne that next generation has to come up through the system and take over. Because, you know, I even have friends, contemporaries that know exactly what I do and how I do it. And they're like, oh, yeah, but I'm fine. You know, I'm just, I'm on an antihypertensive that controls my blood pressure and I'm on cholesterol medicine. So that's controlling my cholesterol and yeah, I don't feel great, but you know, I'm fine. Right. Instead of ever asking, well, why do you need to be on an antihypertensive? Like, that's not good. Why is your blood pressure abnormal? Mm -hmm. It's not good. 
Mm -hmm. right? But, but they're so trained to think that it's normal to need an antihypertensive, to need a statin. They're trained to think it's normal. And we've normalized bad health, right? What, what, what do we say to, to menopausal women all the time? Like, you're supposed to be tired. Of course you're tired. You're getting older. Get used to it. Yeah. This is what happens at our age. Right? Get yourself like, an acupuncturist. <laughs> like people after after a certain age, like your bones are supposed to hurt. Your joints are supposed to hurt. You're supposed to be tired. You're supposed to not sleep well. You're supposed to gain weight. And can you imagine somebody saying to a doctor saying to a man who came in saying he's having erectile dysfunction, you're supposed to have a limp dick at your age. Yeah, of course. Can you imagine? It wouldn't yeah. happen. Well, I was just on a live last night. And we were talking about mammograms, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. Perfect. And it's I on said, the list. <laughs> yeah, good. Can you imagine a scenario where you said to a man, once a year after you turn 40, we're going to take your testicles and we're going to squeeze them between two metal plates. Don't worry. It's only for like five seconds. We'll only take four pictures. And, you know, hopefully you won't have to come back and we're going to radiate you right? And then hopefully you won't have to come back for a year, except like 25% of the time we need to bring you back for more pictures the following week. And, you know, of that 25%, at least half of you will have to come back in six months. Mm -hmm. Can you mm -hmm. imagine mm -hmm. a conversation with a man? A man no. will look at you like, have you lost your ever loving mind? Mm -hmm. And yet mm -hmm. women line up for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They sign That's up for it. They beautiful segue. Yeah. Yes. Let's go there. And, yeah. And, and the, um, and they're so afraid to yeah. not do it Yeah, because the fear has been so deeply instilled mm -hmm. by industry mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they believe, right. Mm -hmm. This is another one of those things that if you say it enough times, people think it's true. 100%. Mammogram, mammograms save lives, right? How mm -hmm. many times have you heard that? Is mm -hmm. it true? No, mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. true at all. And yet people will, will, will lay down and die for that term. Mammograms save lives. They really believe it. So let's talk about where that came from. But, but so, before you say, I just want to put a, a, an exclamation point on that. Okay. Guys, you heard it here from the breast oncologist, the breast yes. surgeon yes. that you practice this for almost 20 years. Yes. Mammograms do not save lives. No. Period. No. Period. They do not. And, you know, let's just like a three-year-old can figure this out, right? Like everyone knows radiation is bad. You see mm -hmm. all those like signs and don't go near and radiation is bad. Everyone knows radiation is bad. So how on earth could radiating people every single year be good? Into right? like sensitive makes, tissues. Into sensitive tissues. And think about the most sensitive population. So let's take the BRCA population, for mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. Everyone is so afraid of having a BRCA mutation because that is a tumor suppressor gene. And if you have a mutation or a change in that gene, it means you're more sensitive to getting cancers because your tumor repair genes are altered. They don't work as efficiently. So we take someone who is already, already more susceptible to radiation. And what do we do? We radiate them earlier 
and more frequently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what are we doing? We are mm -hmm. virtually guaranteeing that that woman gets breast cancer. We are handing her her diagnosis. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. Br like, did you hear that? We're handing the diagnosis. Yeah. This is, yeah. It, it's as I was writing my notes this morning and, and uh, thinking in my mind what we should talk about, what would be most helpful for women for us to talk about as passionate <laughs> providers of women's yeah. health care. Yeah. And, you know, the question I, I, I often have, and I wanted to ask you was, if we have, you've kind of answered most of it, we've got this um, technology that shoots radiation into very sensitive tissues. We're taught at the age of 50, we're supposed to have it yearly. If we have breast cancer in the family, we're supposed to start having those at 40, I think 45, maybe at this point it changes, but, um, and please correct me on those. Yeah, if no, not. listen, the current guidelines say 40 now. So, and, and they are proposing that people with dense breasts and let's please talk about oh, what that means. Yes, please. But they're, they're proposing that women with dense breasts start even earlier. Jesus. So if you're okay. talking about a high risk population, mm -hmm. right? If you believe that, 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 that is a risk factor, if you're talking about a high risk population and you're talking about radiating them even earlier, again, you are basically guaranteeing these women that they are going to get breast cancer because what happens when you radiate tissue again and again and again and again, and you cause more and more and more and more DNA damage and mm -hmm. your tumor repair genes don't work, mm -hmm. you're getting breast cancer, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. on top of that, we are living in this like ever increasingly more toxic earth. And a lot of those toxins are xenoestrogens. These are environmental estrogens that look like estrogen, hook onto the estrogen receptor, but don't act like estrogen. They act in a toxic way. And then we're and then our liver has to clear these these xenoestrogens out and we're only compounding the problem and compounding the problem and compounding the problem. So let's talk about what dense breast tissue is. Please. So when we describe the breast, the breast is made up of four tissues. So it's glandular tissue. That's the, that's the tissue that makes breast milk. It's fat. It's connective tissue that's holding everything together. And it's in a skin envelope, right? And when you are premenopausal and in a position to have and feed a child, your breasts are going to be primarily compromised of glandular tissue, right? Because that's the stage of life that you're at. If you didn't have glandular tissue when you're premenopausal and able to have a child, then your breasts wouldn't work. They wouldn't function in the way that they're supposed to function. You are supposed to have dense breasts when you're premenopausal. You're supposed to, it's normal. And the fact that we are calling it anything other than normal is disgraceful. I can yes. hear people rewinding what you just said, by the way, yeah. <laughs> listening again, please go on. Again, this is the medical profession at work, scaring women yeah. for the purposes of drumming of business. And it's not right. No, it's not right. No, it's no. really dishonest and using scare tactics. It's just, it's not, it's mm -mm. not right. Mm -mm. It's despicable. Agreed. So now as you get in that perimenopausal phase and stop menstruating and then transition into menopause, 
as our female hormones, specifically estrogen, but progesterone too, as they become less available, that breast tissue will start to atrophy and it will be replaced with fatty tissue. And so the older you get, the less and less dense your breasts should get. Now, if you have someone who is postmenopausal and they still have dense breasts, they're either on hormone replacement or they're inflamed. And so I don't think that we should be having conversations about dense breasts in the premenopausal population. It's normal. It's, it's inappropriate to, to scare a woman who is premenopausal into thinking that she's at high risk for breast cancer just because she's young. It's not, it's not the right thing to do and it's not true. Now, what is far more important than the actual density of the breast is which direction is your breast going in? Is it getting less and less dense every year? Because if it's getting less and less dense every year, then that is not a risk factor. That's what is supposed to happen. But if you have increasing density as the years go on, that is a signal that you have inflammation in your body. And that, that should be an indication to you that you have something to look at, to work on, questions to ask, like where is that inflammation coming from and manifesting as breast density. So as far as screening goes, I don't screen with mammogram. I don't believe in screening with mammogram. Um, I think it's dangerous. I know that we cause far more breast cancers in, in populations than lives we've saved. I, you know, exponentially we cause more breast cancers than any lives we save. And I know this because no matter how many women we screen every year, the exact same number of women every year will present with advanced disease and the exact same number of women every year will die of breast cancer every single year no matter what we do, no matter how many people we screen. So we are not saving anyone from dying of breast cancer. The people that are getting aggressive breast cancer are getting aggressive breast cancer, no matter when we start to screen them or how we screen them. And so unfortunately, what needs to happen is twofold. First, we need to find a better way to screen people. We've done that. We've done that. And I'll, I'm happy to talk about that. Second, we need doctors to know what intervention looks like, what early intervention looks like, because not everything needs to be treated. And we need to understand far more about biology to know who needs treatment and who doesn't. And we also need to know what treatment should look like, because if all you do is surgery, chemotherapy, hormonal manipulation, and radiation, you have not helped that person. That person may not die of breast cancer, but they're gonna die of heart disease or dementia, or they're going to have a, a fracture because all of those treatments do nothing to promote health. They do, do nothing to restore health. They often make people sicker and they accelerate heart disease, accelerate brain disease, accelerate bone disease, make people tired. And we are robbing them of years of their life. 
We are trading in one problem for another and it's not the right thing to do. We all took an oath our very first day in medical school, first do no harm. And everything about the way that we conventionally approach breast cancer defies that oath. I love me a shit disturber. So please keep talking. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I am. Me too. <laughs> like, like it or not, that's what you got. But you know, when I hear this, it's just another thing on the list that pisses me off about the current state of women's health care. And so it's fine to be, to be angry about. There's so much. Mm-hmm. And I say it's there fine is. to be angry, but let it motivate us to make real change in the world. Yeah. And well, I, the only way I see it happening is through the women. Absolutely. And- and while we're on that, let's talk about screening because please, the mammographic screening program is based on a foundation, a foundational belief that breast cancer starts small, grows to some predictable critical size, at which time it is more likely to metastasize and become life-threatening. And so if you find it, anywhere on the spectrum before then you can save people's lives. And it's a lovely theory, just doesn't happen to be true. So breast cancer is neither linear nor predictable. And there are very small cancers that have been found early that are very aggressive. And no matter what you do, women are not gonna have a good outcome. Well, in, in the conventional model, and there are very big cancers that almost no matter what you do, those women are going to be fine and everything in between and nothing about the conventional approach acknowledges any of that. Everyone is treated exactly the same. The way we stage, the way we treat is still so archaic and it's a problem, but We screen like 37 million women a year with mammogram. And depending on where you are in the United States, the callback rate from that screening mammogram is upward, you know, nearly 50%. And so then women go for more views. It's called a diagnostic mammogram. And then go for Which is more radiation. More radiation, Mm -hmm. but also generates a lot of money. So a diagnostic mammogram an ultrasound, ultimately an MRI. And there are some populations like the BRCA population or someone who's had a breast cancer before these people are recommended to get screened every year with MRI. So this is very big business, very big business. And MRI is though It doesn't offer ionizing radiation. It is still uncomfortable, cumbersome, takes a long time, is not readily available, and requires the injection of a heavy metal. It requires the injection of gadolinium. So that gadolinium is being stored in your body. It's going nowhere. And anything that is stored in our body is stored at the expense of something that we need. It is displacing something. 
And it's never, it's never displacing something that you don't need. It's always displacing something that you need. So while we're told gadolinium is safe, we're told a lot of things are safe that have not been true, that are far from safe. And so I think that we haven't even begun to see what the impact of screening these women for all these years with MRI. But in any event, the NIH recognized that there was a problem here. And so they charged a man named John Clock with solving this. He is the inventor of the calcium score. He invented the CT colonoscopy. He's a genius. And he actually solved the problem and came up with a test that does not utilize radiation. It is a completely novel imaging technique in that it is unlike anything else that's out there. Um, it is fast, it's comfortable, um, it's relatively inexpensive, and the 3D images that are created in a four to 15 minute study are have 40 times the resolution of MRI. Like you can literally see down to the cellular level. So it is diagnostic and virtually eliminates callbacks. So the callbacks for the technology, which will only get better and better as time goes on, are um, for more, more for software issues than we need a better look. There is no better look. Um, and so there are currently, um, 10 centers open in the United States and, uh, I'm making it my mission to make sure that everyone within the next five years who wants access to one of this for screening has access to it. It oh, has, yes. it has FDA approval. It's been FDA approved to screen women with dense breasts, which mm -hmm. is the most important population to, to screen with this technology anyway, because in that, in that group, in that cohort, mammogram will miss 40% of cancers. So it's why like, bother? <laughs> it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. Yeah. Tell me about that, the technology. Yeah, please. So it really, it's called QT imaging. Okay. Uh, and my centers will be called quintessential imaging. Mm -hmm. And it is like a spy-like experience. You go in, you change into a terry cloth robe, you lie down on a table. There is a warm water bath that your breasts get submerged in. You hear sound, which is just slightly above the speaking voice. And uh, 360 sound waves are transmitted through the water and out comes a 3D image of your breast. And you usually get notified within 24 hours of the results. Anyone who reads MRI, it can read this test. So it's read by a breast imager. And if you have a normal QT scan, they are so sensitive that for most women, it will mean that you don't need a study again for another two years. Excellent. So, so 
Yeah, go ahead, please. It's, it's, it takes a fraction of the time of MRI. It is done at a fraction of the cost of MRI, and it is poised to replace both MRI, but mammogram, because it doesn't make sense to not give this offer to women as, as opposed to having them get radiated. It doesn't make sense for the couple extra minutes that it's going to take to do it. It doesn't make sense to have them radiated. I imagine the industry that's involved in uh, the mammography, um, well, the mammography industry. They're they're going going to do everything they can to discredit this technology. So just so you know, they'll do everything they can. And the radiologists, because think about how it's going to affect their livelihood if they have one scan to read or four. Mm. And that's that this is the problem. This is the problem with business being a part of industry. And listen, everyone deserves to make a living. I don't work for free. You don't work for free. Mm -hmm. I don't expect people to work for free, but let's pay people fairly for what they do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not make them inclined to do what doesn't need to be done, what shouldn't need to be done yeah. because, uh, because that's how they have to earn a living. Like I, we really just need to rethink it. Mm-hmm. And the primary goal should always be what is best for the patient. Absolutely. And we have, we have so far departed from that. Yes. Right. That yes. is not what it's about anymore at all. Right. And that's, Absolutely. that's what we need to bring back. What is best for the patient? And I think as human beings, we have a moral and ethical obligation to take care of each other. And what women do differently is that we do it in the spirit of the great mother. Amen. And that's when things will change. I love what I'm seeing in research, uh, brain and hormones. That's my jam. So I'm loving what I'm seeing in that zone right now. And it's women driven research. Yeah, It's like the, the, the shackles are off. Like we're just figuring this stuff out. We're just figuring it out. It's beautiful. And it's about time and we're really starting to see it. And ultimately I think, Uh, I'm grateful for a lot of reasons for being part of Gen X, but we just won't go quietly into the night. We don't do, (laughs) no, we don't do quietly being told to get used to it. Mm -hmm. No, No. me neither. No. And you know, it's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And I, unfortunately am part of a generation that, um, that, performed and participated in an atrocity because what happened over the last 20 years that has had decades and millions of women suffering as a result is, is it's just shameful. The women's health initiative, which is a study that was originally intended to determine if hormone replacement was protective against heart disease. All right. That was the original design of the study. And the lead investigator was a cardiologist. And it was the biggest study of its kind. It was the most expensive study of its kind. And it would never be reproduced because of its size and its expense. And with that intention in mind, when we know 
that the vast majority of degenerative changes, negative changes happen within the first 10 years after menopause. And the average age of menopause is 52. We enrolled women with an average age of 63 into a study to see if a medicine, which was too late for them would work. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so flawed from the beginning, from the beginning, from the beginning. So flawed. We also said that we were going to enroll healthy women into the study. And yet half of them were smoking Mm -hmm. or had a history of smoking. Mm -hmm. 70% were overweight Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on and on and on and Mm -hmm. on. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we, and enrolled women who were too old, who were not healthy. And then we manipulated the results and released them early and without approval of the medical staff. We said that hormone replacement causes breast cancer and the whole world comes to a halt. And millions of women who were getting the benefit of hormone replacement and make no mistake, the benefits are real and they are great. Millions of women who were getting the benefit of hormone replacement were taken off and millions of women to come had to then suffer through menopause and be at risk for heart disease, dementia, osteoporosis, all for an invalidated study with incorrect conclusions that prevails that was, that was later retracted, which yeah. no one read. Yes. Yeah. And nine out of 10 gynecologists, if you ask them, will say that hormone replacement causes breast cancer and will deny their patients hormone replacement. They will talk about bioidentical hormone replacement like it's something that quacks prescribe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they will perpetuate the fear, perpetuate the lie. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the only thing, the only people that suffer are the women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have allowed that to be okay until now. Yeah. Until now. And, And now we're talking about it and boy is the lid off. Yeah. So please talk about the, first of all, just crystal clear on hormones causing breast cancer. Estrogen does not cause breast cancer. Thank you. Yeah. like (laughs) We've had it our whole lives. Let's just get it out there, right? (laughs) Like if estrogen caused breast cancer, why do we see the vast majority of breast cancers in the postmenopausal population where estrogen is so scarce, right? Why don't we see it in premenopausal women? Why don't we see it in women in their 20s? Why don't we see it in pregnant women? Because estrogen is not the problem. It's ridiculous to think that God would give us a hormone that is so essential to life that essentially our life dries up once (laughs) we stop. Yeah. I mean, it's true. Yes, it is. Right? Like everything goes away after menopause because- Life is going away after menopause because you don't have the hormone that promotes life. Yes. Yes. So it is so preposterous to think, Mm -hmm. but it is a convenient explanation 
because we have a drug for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is all that it's about. And notice no one talks about progesterone. Why don't we talk about progesterone? Yeah. We don't have a drug for that. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. right. That's right. And so it is just so crazy. And yet there are still people out there that believe now are there hyper estrogen states that are, um, that are causing hormonal disruption and causing disease Mm -hmm. states. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I think the vast majority of those are not estrogen excess, but progesterone Progesterone deficiency. deficiency. Yes, exactly. Exactly. This is a huge problem because our progesterone production is highly, highly tied to our cortisol levels. Yes. How are we dealing with the stressors of life? Because if you are a stress case and every single thing has equal meaning to you, right? Like every single thing is a disaster and you're working 24 seven and you're over-exercising and you're under-eating because you're chronically dieting. Like this is the recipe for progesterone depletion Mm -hmm. And you can have the right amount of estrogen. If you have no progesterone around, you're going to have problems, mm-hmm. right? And it's going to look like estrogen excess, but in fact, it's just, it's just a lack of progesterone. And if, if we think about it, it, you know, we are all, we're a concert, we're a mm-hmm. concert and we have to have the, all the instruments. And dance, so if yeah. an instrument is missing, you're going to notice it's not going to be the same. It's not going to perform the same way. And you know, this is a huge issue in our environment. And the other thing that we talked about before is the estrogen from your ovaries is not causing problems, but the environmental estrogens are. And that, that situation is very real mm-hmm. because we are surrounded by these xenoestrogens. They mm-hmm. are everywhere. And unless you know, unless you're educated, and unless you make a conscious choice to avoid them, you're going to come into contact with them. You're going to come into contact with a lot of them, and it's going to have negative impacts on your health. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it takes a lot to, to learn and to be educated and you have to be super aware and committed, but there are simple things like don't drink out of plastic water bottles. Mm-hmm. Don't microwave your food. Don't microwave <laughs> your food. Don't store in plastic. Don't use saran wrap. Yeah. Like these are all things that you can easily do. Don't use a Keurig. Like, I'm sorry. I know it's super convenient, but you mm-hmm. are essentially pouring your coffee every morning through a plastic cup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And guaranteeing that you're getting your dose of microplastics every mm-hmm. single day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and then- we think that it can't matter that much, but the truth is, we're constantly exposed, and we have been constantly. exposed for decades. Yeah, and so you know, we all have a bucket. We all mm-hmm. have an ability to deal with the toxins in our environment, and unfortunately, like we're not living on our grandmother's earth. We're not even living on our mother's earth. Mm-hmm. This earth is exponentially more toxic. And so we can have a big bucket, but guess what? It's going to fill. 
Mm because there's a lot of stuff out there. And so you have to be aware and you have to make choices. Absolutely. And we recently on the podcast interviewed Dr. Wendy Trubo about toxins. She's lovely. Dirty girl. (laughs) Yes, the dirty girl. I know we had some fun. But the funniest thing is she says, don't Google that because you don't like what comes up. (laughs) That's what I tell my patients when I say, if you have to Google me to contact the office, if you just put Dr. Lovely in there, you have to have another qualifier. Otherwise, interesting (laughs) things come up. But let's wind it back. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, for sure. We let's wind it back to progesterone. So, just to clarify, because I think this is a really important point, and a lot of doctors get stuck on this one, is we're not talking about the synthetic progesterone, otherwise known as progestin, which is what's in the birth control pill. It's what's in the standard HRT that was prescribed to our mothers and grandmothers. Um, We're talking about real live progesterone, bioidentical, body identical, whichever term you want to use. Let's talk about that, please. Yeah. So progestins are synthetic hormones. They, um, they come from a synthetic source. They are, they are made in a lab and they do not resemble our progesterone. And when they don't resemble our progesterone, they act differently. And I I say like, everything is kind of a lock and key. So if you have progesterone and it goes and sits on the progesterone receptor, if it is biologic progesterone, it's going to do what it's supposed to do, dissociate when it's supposed to dissociate and get eliminated by the body. But when you have synthetic progesterone, it's like progesterone, but not exactly. And so it is going to go sit in the receptor, only it's not going to fit exactly the same way. It's not going to act exactly the same way. And it's not going to dissociate exactly in the same way. So you're getting overstimulation and that's true of estrogen too. So Premarin, which was the actual drug, which was used in the Women's Health Initiative, Premarin comes from pregnant mare urine, right? This was pregnant horse urine, which was used as the drug. When we talk about bioidentical, we're talking about a molecule that looks exactly like our progesterone, looks exactly like our estrogen or, you know, one of the estrogens we have, we have three. So when you replace with the exact same molecule, it acts like your estrogen would. And we do not see an increase in breast cancers, and it has been studied time and time again. We do not see an increase in breast cancers or in breast cancer recurrences in people on bioidentical hormone replacement. Now, I do want to say, For people on synthetic hormone replacement, we also don't see an increase in breast cancers. People on hormone replacement are going to get breast cancer, just like people not on hormone replacement are going to get breast cancer because the environment is the environment and we are going to develop disease. However, the women on hormone replacement do better when they get breast cancer than the ones that don't. 
And the women who go on hormone replacement after their breast cancer do not have more recurrences than the people that don't. That flies totally in the face of what everybody thinks is true about breast cancer risk and HRT. Say it again, please. Yeah. Yeah. So there is no increased risk of getting breast cancer if you're on HRT. And if you are on HRT and you get breast cancer, you will have a better outcome as compared to the women that are not on hormone replacement. And if you, after you treat your breast cancer, however, you're going to treat your breast cancer, if you are to go on hormone replacement afterwards, you do not have an increased risk of recurrence as compared to people who don't. Excellent. You just saved a whole lot of women by saying that. Thank you for sharing that. Now, unfortunately, your doctor will be totally uncomfortable with that statement. And so I encourage you to read Estrogen Matters by Avram Blooming and Carol Tavris. They did an amazing job of summarizing all the data that's out there. Mm. That what, what is in that book is the truth. Mm. And after you read it, have your physician read it. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. the only way that we are going to have mainstream change is through mass education. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just this morning, I made a post on Instagram where I took a picture of the book. As I was preparing for our conversation today, I wanted to remind myself of the numbers. And um, so I think it's, and actually what I said in that post was buy your doctor a copy and take it to them. Yeah. If you want to make a difference, we yeah. need to be educating the doctors that this yeah. is a safe and effective way to take care of symptomatology around perimenopause and yeah. menopause. Now, but, at the yeah. same time, I don't use hormones in isolation because I am still talking about all the dietary and lifestyle changes that I know are necessary for health. So I am talking to people about eating a whole food plant-based, low glycemic diet. I am talking to people about making sure that they are moving their bodies every single day, multiple times a day in a joyful way. I am Mm -hmm. making sure that they are getting nourished in the way that they need to get nourished. I am making sure that they are prioritizing sleep because sleep is when all our healing happens. And if you are not sleeping, you are not healing. And there is no path to health unless you're sleeping at night. Mm Mm-hmm. I am talking to them about all of these environmental toxins and asking them to please not cook in nonstick, not store in plastic, not drink out of plastic, not use fragrance, not use Mm -hmm. perfume, get rid of all the Mm -hmm. treatments around you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then living a connected life, like really being mindful about taking the trash out, not living in difficult relationships, not, not working in difficult workplaces Mm -hmm. and living your purpose, doing Mm -hmm. things that bring you joy and creating that chemistry of joy. Because Mm -hmm. when we do that, there's no room for disease. Absolutely. Oh my God, you've said a mouthful and you brought it back to the functional medicine start of this conversation, Mm -hmm. which is that when you handle the pillars of health, 
it's not difficult stuff. It's the stuff we know we should be doing. We've just yeah. been convinced otherwise that yeah. we don't have to, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is part of the reckoning of perimenopause is, is you really have to look at those things. You can decide at this point. Um, you know, uh, Peter Atia talks about the the marginal decade, right? You can decide yeah. right now, the decisions you make right now during yeah. this era is what is going to set you up for whether or not you're even conscious during your marginal era, right? Yeah. Or how and it, the next and it really, years. it really matters. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you are still menstruating and you are starting to feel the symptoms because menopause is a 10 year process, it's not mm-hmm. like one day you're getting your period and the next day you're not. And there's no transition like that transition is long. Mm-hmm. So if you're starting to have changes and you're starting to feel symptoms and your doctor tells you it's not worth it to check your hormones, I would check the book for the next doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because yep. starting, starting then is really important. Starting to prioritize your health. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would like it, you to do it as early as possible. But starting to really prioritize your health along that at that time will make all the difference for decades to come. And um, and there are ways of making that transition seamless and protecting your health so that you live long and die young. Oh, I love that. Live long and die young. My husband and I say happy, healthy, dead. That's how we want to do it in this house. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, I was, I was speaking to, um, cash Khan yesterday. Do you know him? I do. Yep. Yeah. And he says, you know, I want to die at 120 riding my bicycle and that's what yes. we all should be doing. Right. Like we know that there are populations around the world, the blue zones, where people live well past a hundred years and they are not living their last 10 or 20 years in a hospital bed or a wheelchair or anything like that because their lives are meaningful, purposeful, and they have all of those pillars of health built in. They're walking around their village. They're eating locally. They don't have processed foods in their diet. They garden, they get plenty of sunlight and sun exposure and community, community, right? They, the older they get, the wiser they are, the more respected they are. We throw our elderly away. Yes, we do. Right. We don't value them. Mm -mm. And so they, they have nothing to live for and they don't live and they don't live well where the, the vast majority of people in this country will, will be bankrupted by their medical issues in the last 10 years of their life. And, and it doesn't have to be that way, but it requires a mindset shift and health is an active process. You can't buy it. You have to get it and you have to achieve it. And Mm -hmm. it's an active process. It's an engagement really, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I have, as we sort of bring this conversation to a close, although I sense you and I could talk all day, it'd be fun. (laughs) Uh, Two things, actually. The first is if, so I happen to be in Canada, although most of my listeners for this podcast uh, are in the United States. But if we happen to live in an area we don't yet have access to the QT imaging, what's the next best option? Um, 
You know, I think if you're putting all those pillars into place and you're doing self-examinations, know what you look like, right? Mm -hmm. Like once a month when you either one week after your cycle starts, so day seven, or if you're past the time of cycling at where you, for some reason, don't get a cycle, then once a month, check your breasts, you know, you can do feel them on the first, know what they look like, know what they feel like so that you can know and recognize a change. I want to be clear. There is nothing wrong with going to get a diagnostic mammogram. If you feel something, if you see something, if you yeah. notice something, you should get it imaged. That is not the same as someone who is just going for screening. I don't believe in radiating for screening, but I do believe in using all available tools to help mm -hmm. us when mm -hmm. we need help. Right. Okay. If you are going to get a mammogram, please, please, please to protect against uh, radiation, the damage of radiation, take 100 milligrams of melatonin and 2000 to 4,000 milligrams of liposomal vitamin C one hour prior to the study. Don't ask me if melatonin will make you tired. I have no idea. That is not a sleep dose. That is an anti-inflammatory dose. Mm -hmm. I give that dose to my children because they're always breaking something. I give that dose to my children because they're mm -hmm. athletes mm -hmm. before they have their x-rays. They do fine. If you are not sure how you're going to respond to that dose, do a trial dose, try it mm -hmm. out a day before. And if you get tired, have someone take you to your study. You are yeah. not going to be passed out on the floor. You get, yes. If you get an, have a nap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's well worth it to protect from the damaging effects of radiation. Yes, absolutely. The last thing I want to ask you about, as I was reminding myself in reading the Estrogen Matters book this morning, uh, what Dr. Blooming says is that of the women who have a breast cancer diagnosis, 90% of them will be cured and will not need surgery or chemo. Now, when I read that, I went, that should be front page news everywhere because I think there's this whole industry. Well, I know there's a whole industry that says risk, prevention, frightening, all this scary stuff, all this fear. And guess what? The fear just feeds that inflammation that you were talking about, not yeah. to mention makes yeah. us anxious, et cetera. So I'd yeah. love to hear your thoughts on that, please. Yeah. So I don't remember that statistic. So I'm going to have to look that up. But let me say this. The vast majority of breast cancers that are treated in this country do not require treatment. And if we could, because in this country, we don't tolerate any discomfort, but if we could sit in the discomfort of where is this coming from and ask ourselves that question and do a long look at what is working for me and what is not, and intervene on that level, then I, I couldn't agree more that there is no, for the vast majority of people, there would be no place for surgery and chemo and radiation. That said, there are going to be some aggressive cancers. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, those are the people, they have significant tumor burden. Their metabolism has really shifted to a catabolic state. Those people, their proverbial sink is overflowing. 
their floor, their bathroom floor is flooded. You need to clean up that mess. That's surgery. That's radiation. That's chemotherapy, right? We've got to mop up the floor. However, unless you figure out how to turn that faucet off, you can't mop up the floor in perpetuity. You just can't. Mm -hmm. And so the work for everyone needs to be figure out your why. Some people are going to need those conventional treatments. Some people are not. I wish there was a test now, a biologic, physiologic test that told people who does and who does not need to be treated. I don't think that's forthcoming. Yeah. Because the business of breast cancer is big. Multi-billion dollar industry. Multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. Just on the imaging alone, before we even take one person to the operating room, before we even take one person to the chemo suite or to the radiation suite, we're already just from the imaging alone at a multi-billion dollar industry. And ladies who are listening, this is from someone on the inside for almost 20 years. Well, more than that, if you count your education, right? So this is, uh, I mean, frontline speaking, right? So let's, let's change this. Let's shift this. Even if it's just one woman at a time, if a woman is facing a breast cancer diagnosis currently, how does she go about getting help outside of this industry we were talking about? How I'm does she go? So about- glad you asked because <laughs> last week yes. I released my book, the smart person's guide to breast cancer. Fantastic. And that is exactly where you start. Okay. And the first line of the book is take a breath, mm. take a breath, take a pause. You have plenty of time. You have plenty of time with rare exception. And I name those exceptions, but unless you're one of those rare exceptions and they are exceedingly rare over my career, where I treated thousands and thousands of women I had two or three women who needed to make a decision within a week and the rest of them, you can take your time, learn about the disease, ask, start to ask your questions. Why is this happening? Build a team of people who are listening to you because if your doctor is not listening to you, if your doctor doesn't respect what you think and what you want, that is not your partner. You need a partner. Well, that by itself will just, I mean, that's the best advice is if your doctor is not working with you, then find a new doctor. And, you know, here in Western Canada, where I am, we have difficulties with that because there's just simply not enough general practitioners to help the people that are here. But that's another conversation for another day. But it's okay to be the squeaky wheel. It's okay to ask the questions. And what you've just said with a very few exceptions. Just take a moment, take a breath, pause, and know that it's going to be okay. And I think when we hear the big C, when we hear the word cancer, we freak out and say, oh my God, there's a time thing. We got to get to this right away. I mean, it's terrifying. And and the doctors in the hospitals don't do anything to correct that because they want you signed up. They want you on their book. They want you on their docket. They want you to be their patient. Um, and they're richly rewarded for that. And mm. listen, I, I feel bad because doctors work so hard. 
They work so hard for their money and um, they don't have great lives and they deal with tremendous, tremendous burden mm -hmm. because it's, it's really hard to have your life filled with cancer. I mean, you know, it's been my life for, for 25 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> what you, you look 32. How yeah, is that possible? Of I am 32. <laughs> Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Not. Thank God for the zoom touch up feature. I know. Right. <laughs> um, but the, the bottom line is that doctors are doing their best. They are, and they're just, you know, if all you have is a hammer, then everything is a nail. And I am so fortunate to have had access and exposure to a bigger toolbox mm -hmm. and instruction on how to use it. Mm -hmm. And I am hopeful that as time goes by, more and more doctors will be curious because it's really about treating life with curiosity rather than fear mm -hmm. that, that gets you through and, and makes you successful. And so I'm just hoping that more doctors are curious and that medical education changes and people, I believe, should continue to be their own proponents. I do believe that the patient is the doctor of the future and no one is going to know you better than you know yourself. But wouldn't it be great if you could actually partner with your doctor Absolutely. and achieve health. Absolutely. Absolutely. If people want to know more about you, how do they find out more? Yeah. So my, my website is realhealthmd.com. There you go. And, uh, I hope that you're listening to my podcast, which is called keeping abreast with Dr. Jen. We'll give you the link to my book, which is the smart person's guide to breast cancer. If you go to my website, and you don't have breast cancer, but you just want to know how to live your best life, you can download a free copy of the Breast Owner's Manual. Perfect. And you can follow me on all social. I'm at Dr. Jen Simmons and my Jen has two ends. Perfect. Perfect. Last question I have for you today is knowing what you know now, what would you tell your 25-year-old self? Mm. Well... You know, I, I just don't know if I would have ever gotten here without my path. Um, but, you know, I probably could have done with eating less sugar and, uh, <laughs> and um, just treat everything with curiosity. Be super, super curious. I love it. I love it. Thank you I so much for the time. I think I would have bought a lot more Apple stock too. Oh yeah. No kidding. Right. <laughs> Google too. Yeah. <laughs> Apple and Google, Apple and Google. maybe even Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. yeah. Indeed. I think, I think definitely I would have told my, my 25 year old self to invest way more. Oh yeah. Isn't that the truth? Cause our yeah. generation mine anyways, did not get that information. It was like, mm -mm. no, a man will take care of that for you. Don't worry mm -hmm. about it. Big amounts yeah. of money are coming. Don't yeah. sweat it. Yeah. Yeah. Invest, learn yeah. how to invest, invest. for sure. Learn and how to in invest your, is very, very, very important. Not just financially, but health-wise too. So yeah, 
Yeah. Across the board. hundred percent. the board. I've loved this conversation. Times a thousand. I've loved it. Thank you so much for being here. It was an absolute pleasure. The views and nutritional advice expressed by Dr. Fiona Lovely are not intended to be a substitute for conventional medical service. If you have or suspect that you have a medical problem, promptly contact your healthcare provider. No information offered here should be interpreted as a diagnosis of any disease, nor an attempt to treat or prevent or cure any disease or condition. As with any new advice or program, you should always contact your healthcare provider prior to starting anything new. Thank you.